name's Daniel, one of the team here, and um, if you're new with us, if you're not a believer, if you're just looking in, it's great to have you with us. Um, and if you've got a Bible, can you turn with me to the book of Ephesians and chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible, that's absolutely fine. It's going to come up on the screen, and I want to read um, a slightly longer passage we're not going to go into all of it. We did part one of this two-parter really last week. Um, but I want to read Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 to 32. And Paul writing to a church in the city of Ephesus says this. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, having putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Shall we pray together? Father, I thank you for this letter written some 2,000 years ago, yet so piercingly relevant for us today. And I pray that you would open up a sense of reality and honesty in this room right now, that as we speak about these truths, some concrete, hard realities that we might live under and even may feel uncomfortable at times as we read these things out. Lord, would you bring freedom and liberty and light? And we pray that this community would live these traits out in such a manner, Lord, that we might leave every time we gather and every time we scatter filled with joy because of this kind of community that we belong to. And I pray for my own heart and my own mind right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, two-parter, and we are looking over these two weeks at what it means to change. In chapter 5, we get onto some really interesting stuff about sexual immorality and not even a hint of sexual impurity being amongst you as a church. As a very kind pastor, I've delegated that job to Craig, so he is going to be dealing with that next week. Uh, it's my blessing to Craig and his sanctification. So, if you want to know about sexual immorality and no hint of impurity, come next week. Craig's going to be talking all about that, and I'm going to be listening very attentively. 
For now, we are dealing with what it means to change, to put off the old self and to put on the new. And last week, we looked at these general principles of how a person actually changes, what it is that fundamentally makes people change. We live in a culture today where we love change. We love personal development. We love having a personal development plan. We love having a coach, a mentor, someone who will help me fulfill my potential. And Paul, in the scriptures, actually has a very nuanced, very holistic view of what it means for a person to change. Sometimes the Bible is kind of scoffed at as being ancient and simplistic. When you actually get to read the New Testament, you find very nuanced teaching and a very incisive teaching that actually deals with the whole person. It's amazing how profound the teaching is in the New Testament. And Paul lays out in the first passage here that we taught last week how we actually change. And it's to do first and foremost with the spirit of a mind. What actually is the controlling narrative in our minds? So we looked at this whole thing of what we believe our origins are, how we believe we get morality, what we believe my purpose is in this life, and where we believe we are headed as human beings. And from this whole framework, we get the spirit of minds where we believe what life is all about. And from that place, we act out who we actually think we are. And so you have the spirit of the mind that comes first. And when we have this controlling storyline that controls our lives, we then know who we are in the middle of it. So if God is my creator, if I'm loved by God today, if he has a purpose for me beyond this short 70, 80 years, if I know that I am loved with unconditional love, then my identity changes. Who I am changes. And throughout Ephesians up to this point, he has been trying to labor this point that who you are as a Christian now, when you follow Christ, is not simply around a changed diary on a Sunday. Oh, I've become a Christian, so I do a different thing on my Sunday morning now. And I actually try to go to this group on a Wednesday and we eat food and we talk about the... That, that's like such surface level. Paul says, if you have become a Christian, the change is way more about what you do with your week. It is actually who you are. So throughout these first few chapters, Paul's been laying out this reality that you are now holy and blameless if you have made this step of faith to become a Christian. You are now utterly pure before the creator of the universe. That impurity that you once lived with, that sense of like uh, dirt, filth sometimes inside you, that's totally gone. You are holy and blameless now before. You have been adopted into the family of God. It is not just you and your shadow trying to make it through life on your lonesome. You have God as a father in heaven watching over you, careful, attentive, interested in every aspect of your life. You have an identity now as a child of God. You have a destiny that is bound up with glory. Riches are set ahead of you. You might be made redundant. You might lose out. You might, the market might go down. You might lose out in this life, but you have glory set before you, and that changes who you think you are. You are a child of God now. We're told that we were once dead, spiritually speaking, but now we have been made alive, sat at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. We are told we have this august position in the spiritual world when we become Christians so that you now have the Father's ear, that I can talk to him on a morning, sat at my desk and the father the God at the center of everything upholding every molecule in the whole universe I have his ear 
I can talk to him. I can share things that are going on in my life. And he listens to me. And he's leaning over, attentive, putting his left ear to me. Okay, all right, I'm, I'm hearing you. How can I help? What, what, can, what can I do? That changes your idea. If you know you have the ear of the God of the universe, that changes who you think you are. I am a child of God. I'm not daunted by any situation. However low you are or however high you are, whatever situation is going to come up, I'm a child of God, and I have the ear of the God of the universe. That will change who you are. Therefore, if you have been changed and you are a child of God, there, Paul then says, there are some things that you need to put off and some things that you need to put on. Because there are some things, if you have taken on this new identity as a child of God, not a child of London, a child of North London, a child of wherever you came from, a child of your parents, or I'm just a product of my environment. No, if you are a child of God, that is going to change who you are, and therefore a new life has to fit it. So Paul is saying, if your identity has changed, if you're a Christ follower, there are some things now that just don't suit you anymore. You've seen those pictures, haven't you, where like the Weight Watchers thing, where there is this person who was like 23 stone, and now they're 11 stone, and they're looking amazing. And you know if this new 11 stone person was trying to put on their old clothes, it's just not going to fit. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. There's a spiritual before and after. There was this old way of life where you were walking like the way of London. You were walking in the way of the world. And when you walked in that way, actually doing the old things, that fit you. It kind of looked okay on you. But now you become a Christ follower, that way it just doesn't suit you. And here's a whole set of new clothes that you need to put on. And in this passage, Paul gives us five new sets of clothes that we need to put on, kind of behavior, spiritual clothes that we need to live if our life is going to match this new identity that we have in Jesus. So he says here, he says, if you want to follow Christ, you need to put off falsehood and you need to put on truth now. He says, you need to stop harboring, harboring anger, and you need to put on reconciliation. You need to stop stealing. It just doesn't suit you anymore. And you need to put on a heart of generosity towards other, others. You need to stop gossiping, stop cutting people down. It doesn't fit you. It's ugly on you now. You need to put on a spirit of encouragement. So you need to put off bitterness and animosity. That's so 2018. That's so yesterday. You need to put on kindness. And the reason why Paul is concerned with this is not just because this is like the right thing to do. Well, you're Christians now, so you're like, you want to do the right thing, don't you? That's not Paul's intention at all. For Paul, he sees this community of faith, these followers of Christ who have come together in the center of Ephesus, and he sees way more that's going on right there in this community than what might meet the eye. So you might walk in here this morning and say, well, what meets the eye? Well, there's a band, there's some songs, there's a talk from the Bible, there's a crest, there's some tea and coffee, there's all these things, and that's kind of church. But for Paul, church is way more than just a few people gathering together on a Sunday morning. He says this in chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. He says, and he, that is God, put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church, Trinity Church London included, which is his body, the body of Jesus, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you think, what's going on today? Some songs, a bit of teaching, some coffee, then I go home. Paul says, no, no, no. You are actually the body of Christ here in central London. 
you have a grand calling. And you look around, you think, uh, 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 yes, us. Jesus was very ordinary. You're very ordinary. Get over yourself. We are the body of Christ here in central London. And then he says at the end of chapter 2, in him, Trinity Church London, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So this is not just for us to have a nice time. God is dwelling here. When we gather on a Sunday and when we scatter in our workplaces tomorrow morning, God is dwelling with us. He is forming us into a place where there's no temple now to go to. It's us. If people want to meet with God, they go to Christ followers and they find out what God is all about. And that is what is at stake here. So in this passage, I'm just about to go through these five traits, these five kind of sets of clothes, if you will. But these two phrases pop up, one about the devil and one about the Holy Spirit. And they can feel kind of random because he's talking about these new things you need to put on, put on, put on. And then halfway through, he says, oh, yeah, and by the way, give no opportunity to the devil. You think, oh, where did that come from? Aren't we like talking about how we live on a, on a Monday morning? And he says, oh yeah, and by the way, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And I think he's saying things not in relation to specific traits or specific clothes that we might wear, but underlying all of this is this reality, that we are born of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in this community. And if we are going to have the Holy Spirit power living amongst us so that change might truly happen, that we might be the light of London, if that is going to be the case, we have to live this because if we don't, two things will happen. One, the Holy Spirit might leave us and we might have the same songs. We might have the same teachings. We might have the same people turning up on a Sunday and yet not have the Holy Spirit powerfully at work amongst us. That is possible. And some churches go for months and then years living on the surface fine, but actually the power of the Holy Spirit left years ago. He says, that can happen if your life does not match up to the confession of your faith. You create this gap where the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, hmm, okay, I'm going to find someone who actually wants to follow me. Because I've been teaching you and teaching you and you are just not following. And then what happens in this gap is that the devil sees an opportunity. And he takes some ground in your life. You say, well, you believe that and your lifestyle is down here. There's this big opportunity for me to get into your life. And so he starts to make camp in your life. And you don't notice this at first, but the devil just starts to say, okay, I've got an opportunity here. I could, I could just quietly make camp here, put up some barracks, put up some fencing, put up some barbed wire so no one can touch this bit of land in that person's life or in that church's life. And slowly over time, skirmish after skirmish, Satan takes more and more and more ground until you feel like, where, where did my life get to? Or some churches and they realize, like, where did we go adrift? How did we get to this place where we're fracturing, we're powerless, we're shrinking? How did we get to this place? And maybe, just maybe, down the line, back in history past, there was a moment where they said, there's a little opportunity I can get into that community. And quietly, by quietly, by quietly, he took more and more ground. Because this is what we are about. We are about a dwelling place of God, not just can we put on a church, put on a church. Like, this is where God dwells. Where you go tomorrow is where God dwells. And we want the power of God in our life. And if we're going to do that and have that power, it is going to be because our life matches what we believe in. Amen? So I want to talk about these five things. 
and they get a bit concrete they get a bit like crunchy so just to warn you and if you're an unbeliever here today welcome we love having you here if you if your christian friend has brought you along this might be an opportunity to like take an inventory on their life and you can just like you can quiz them later and tell them how they're really doing like the pastor said that you should be looking like this and i noticed last week you know and if you're a believer you can use this as a moment to like just open up your heart and say okay lord how am i doing like am i putting on this new clothing how is my, are there areas of my life that I just need to adjust slightly? Because I don't want to give any room to the devil and I want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So, five sets of clothes. Firstly, we're to put on truth over falsehood. It says, verse 25, Therefore, having putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This idea of falsehood is not necessarily just an out and out lie. It's this sense that there is a reality about who I am or a certain situation and there is this reality here and yet I want to put some words or a mask in front of that so that you don't quite actually know the reality of who I am or a certain situation and I give a false impression. Did that make sense? So I know I am like this, for example, I feel like this, and I know I'm like th this kind of person, and yet I can use a kind of mask with my conversations, with who I am, with my emails, with my socializing, and I can use all of that in such a way to create an impression of who I am that is actually different to, know, to what I know is, is real. Just think social media for a minute and Instagram and all the filters and blah, blah, blah. Creating an impression of who I am that is not actually the true me. Or a situation, you know you've been pressed or your boss has said something about have you done that or what happened about that project or where are you up to with that? And what happens is you create a false impression of where you are actually at. Everyone, anyone ever been there? You're like, oh, I know I should be two weeks ahead of this, but I'm not. And I'm just going to use some words right now to kind of make it out that I'm further along than I actually am because this is awkward. That's falsehood. John, um, John Wesley, if you know John Wesley, he was a pastor back in the 1700s. He started unintentionally Methodism, and now there's Centri Centri Methodist Central Hall down the road here, just opposite Westminster Abbey. And he was, a, he was a powerful, feisty preacher. He wasn't smiley like me. He was like stern, like he made people cry. He was a short guy as well. So if you go down to Methodist Central Hall, like there's a, there's a lifestyle statue of him there. And he was like, he's five foot two. So you think this great, impressive John Wesley, like you have to like, oh, you know, he's, he's really small, but he was really feisty. You, he's not the kind of guy you would want to cross. And he was so concerned that the people that he led lived in holiness and walked with an authenticity and an integrity of their life. What they believed in Christ, does it match up with your life? That he set forward these 21 questions that he would put in the hands of church members. And he says, I want you to ask these questions of each other whenever you meet. So they get together on a Wednesday night, whatever it might be, in their small groups, and they would literally ask these, the, the, each other these questions. Do you want to know what the first two questions are? Yes. Thank you for saying yes. <laughs> first question. This is what all Methodist believers would ask each other. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? Ouch. In other words, am I a hypocrite? Yeah? 
Some of you, you like, you like to give off the impression that you know lots of stuff. And you don't like it when you don't know stuff. So you've got a way in which you can just kind of make out that you know what's going on right now in a conversation through a nod or a silence or a, uh, or a yeah. And then, uh, yeah, oh. Some of you want to make out that you're actually a more moral person than you are, that you've nailed holiness. And so you keep back all the other stuff of your life that you know is a rotten mess and the stuff you do on a Friday with your workmates. And when it gets to Wednesday in community group, you're like, yeah, nailing my Bible, nailing my quiet time, praying like anything. I'm on fire for God. Creating this impression that you are better than you are. Second question. Gonna, you can Google this later. I mean, it's like, if you want to feel convicted, read these. <laughs> if you've got nothing else to do this afternoon, this is a really good way of spending. Question two, am I honest in all my acts or words, or do I exaggerate? Yeah. Ouch. Not just like out-and-out out flagrant lies, like you might do as a four-year-old. Like, Kiki, hit Micah. Did you hit Micah? No. Like, most of us learn to, like, have more subtle ways of lying than that. Am I, a hip, am, am I acting in total integrity? And here's the thing. If you, if you live with that kind of falsehood, always trying to live and trying to just give off this impression, even subconsciously, two things will happen. Firstly, you will always live lonely, oddly, because you will think you are trying to be accepted into the community because you think, if I actually drop this mask, if I actually let people know who I am, then they won't accept me. But actually, the opposite thing happens. What happens is you hide your life in such a way that even if it's 5% or 10% of your life that you keep hidden from the community, you will never be fully known. And you will always live with this lingering sense of loneliness, even in the middle of a community. And the other thing will happen is actually over time, trust will slowly break down because we can pick up inauthenticity, can't we? We can pick up over time where someone isn't actually living with integrity or their words quite aren't matching up. And actually what, be, what happens is trust begins to erode and erode and erode. So actually, they're not really being honest about who they are. I'm not sure I want to be. I don't want to be vulnerable if they're not being vulnerable. And suddenly everyone starts to retract into themselves and the church fractures. But this is my passion for Trinity Church London, that every single one of us could walk into this place and walk to community group and be with each other and live in such a way that there would be no masks and no moments of conversation when we feel like we have to keep up a front. I have to feel like I need to tell you that I know more than I do or that I'm better than or I'm doing better than I am. Actually, in this place, this is a safe environment where you can take down the mask and be yourself. Amen? Can you imagine a community where people walk in and their first reaction is to burst into tears because suddenly they realize they're in an environment where they can suddenly be themselves, in a city that will not let you be yourselves, where you have to put on a front, where you have to be tough, where you cannot show any weakness. Actually, this can be a community where people come in and suddenly, without knowing, they burst into tears. They suddenly realize, I don't need to strive here. I'm accepted for who I am with all of my weaknesses and all of my faults and all of my doubts about faith and everything, this is somewhere where I can just be myself. This is the kind of community that I would like to be a part of because trying to put on a front and living with falsehood is exhausting after a while. Amen? So let's put off falsehood and live in truth. 
The second set of clothes is this, that we're to put on reconciliation and we're to take off on what I'm going to call festering anger. Because he says in verse 26, be angry. It's not like a sermon you hear much of. (laughs) And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There is this weird idea that's gotten around now and it's really entrenched in society that the calling of Christians is to be nice. Have you noticed that? Like you see a TV program, some series, and there's like some vicar along the way, like it's not a main character, but he's there in the background. And what is the vicar almost invariably like? Like totally ineffectual, just smiley, just there in the background, just not making a noise, just, just being nice. Because that is basically what people view as Christian. If you're a Christian, your calling in life is to be nice. And when you read the life of Christ, you would have never have said, hey, what's this Jesus like? Oh, it's, it's, just, it's, really, it's just so nice. Like, I love bringing him around for tea. My mum loves him. Like, it's just it's so nice to have around. We, we love having dinner with him. He, look, no one would have said that about Jesus. This was a man who was fierce. No one would have said of Jesus when he was alive, oh, he's a nice guy. Like, yeah, no. This was a man who would stand in the middle of large mobs who, if they had the opportunity in that moment, that would have got away with it, they would have killed him there and then. They, they were planning to kill him, and he would stand in the middle of these mobs, and he would face them down in verbal arguments, and he would turn them in such a way that they would leave with a tail between their legs. This is a man who would face down continually men and women who hated him. He would preach in such a way that if you were preaching here today, you would make a lot of us blush. Let me just, like, if you want to go home again, some other homework, Matthew 23, he preaches to some religious leaders, and can I just tell you some of the things that he calls these religious leaders? He calls them lazy, unwilling to lift a finger to help others. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them children of hell. He calls them blind guys. This is not like seeker-sensitive church. (laughs) Fools, you whitewashed tombs. He says, you're ugly on the inside. You've got these nice clothes. You waft around the temple. You are so ugly on the inside, he says. He says that you are lawless. You are serpents. You are a brood of vipers. Christ was no namby-pamby religious nice leader. He walked into the temple courts one day deliberately with this goal in mind to turn temple um, uh, markets over. Literally, people set up court in the morning and he came along and turned them over in anger because they were dishonoring the name of his God, the Father in heaven. They were dishonoring his name. He says, you don't know, this is not why it's for, this is not for greedy gain. This is a prayer, a house of the prayer for the nations. Jesus was never nice. So as Christians, we've got to wash away the whole nice thing. London might want us just to be nice, but Jesus was never nice. As C.S. Lewis said, like in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's like, is, he, is, is this Aslan okay? He's like, no, he's a lion. He's fierce, but he's good. He's come to serve, but he uses his passion to serve us. And we've got to get that right because there is a calling on us, Paul says, at times, to be angry. Be angry about something. (laughs) Our problem is we get angry about the wrong thing. We get angry when we get cut up again on the main road and someone pulls out when they just shouldn't have been there. 
And so we honk our horns in anger because we've got this steel casing that's protecting us and I can drive away quickly if they get out of their car. We get, we get angry because of unrighteous reasons. We get angry because our ego's pricked. I was overlooked. They didn't say something that I, I felt appreciated me. That we get, but actually there is a case where we need to be angry about good things, about injustice. I think our problem often as a church is not that we're angry all the time. Actually, I think we don't know how to deal with anger a lot of the time. It's why so many people deal with depression and anxiety and things because we've just suppressed it because we, we don't know what to do with anger. So we don't, can't be angry in church. So we just crush it down there. We don't want to do with it. Actually, there's a right time where we've got to be angry about the injustices that we see. That he's saying, actually, be angry. You've got to act on this, which is why I think he's talking about this. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I don't think it's saying, like, you just got to reconcile within 12 hours. Oh, sundown's in one hour. You've got to get it done in an hour. Well, they're in another country. I don't know. Just got to get it done. I don't think he's talking like that. He's saying, what do you think? If you're angry about something, and if it's righteous, and if there's injustice, you have got to do something about it. Don't allow that brooding anger to just dissipate so nothing ever happens so oh, i feel so riled up about this situation in london okay so what what happened did you pray about it did you get involved did you see someone about it did you did you talk about it a group what what did you do oh i don't know i just feel so angry about this injustice what good is that Paul is saying, no, be angry and do something about it. Don't let the sun go down on the anger. Enact something. It might be a small something. It might be like, Lord, I need you to act. I need you to do something in this situation. It might be getting involved in a charity that serves that, that purpose. You might know, actually, you talk with your community group. Actually, could we do something collectively, financially, to do something just with that person there because they're not being treated well? It's doing something with it. So it's filtering out, okay, when is it? So you, there's anger in your life, okay? Like all of us will feel angry at some point. What are we going to do with it? If it's righteous anger, you act on it and you do something with it. Even if it's just a prayer, you say, Lord, I want you to do something with this injustice. Or you might sense, this is un- I'm just, my ego has just been pricked here. What do you need to do? You need to take it to God. If someone has actually wronged you, you need to talk to them. You don't just let that fizzle out. You've got to go and just make some reconciliation. What you said there really hurt me. Can I just talk about it? Gently, politely, but I just need to get this cleared up because there's anger in my life. Paul said, be angry and then like, deal with it. So you've got to be angry and then deal with it. And you've got to figure out. So three things. Righteous anger against injustice, or there's two types of unrighteous anger, one that needs to be dealt with with somebody because you've actually been wronged, or the other, the worst kind, is your ego has just been pricked. You've just got to talk to God and ask for help. All right? So second point, be angry, but in the right way. Okay. Thirdly, we've got to put on giving and take off stealing. He says these words, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Stealing as a general rule for most of us is not like a massive deal. Most of us are not going into shops, taking things and walking out and running away from security guards. If you are, my advice is to stop it and don't. What Paul is talking about here is actually something far deeper. I think he's talking about this greed for accumulation of wealth and things and stuff, even if it means slightly 
keep cheating on your end of year tax returns or just smidging something this way or that way. He's saying your goal is not to accumulate wealth in this life, but your goal is to earn money for this reason, he says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So what is the thing that you have got to put on? You've got to put on this desire that every time you accumulate some wealth, your first thought, your first instinct is, what kind of holiday could I go on this year? That's not the first thought. The first thought now is, how could I use this to serve and bless someone else who maybe hasn't been on a holiday? That makes sense? You get a promotion at work and suddenly you get this large increase in your salary. And rather than thinking first thought, huh, I wonder what upgrade in my car I could get. I wonder what holiday I could go on this year because I've got all this extra cash now. What could I do? Paul is saying, rather than doing that, why don't you, when you get that large increase in that promotion, you say, um, what, what could I do with this to help and serve someone else? How could I bless someone who actually has just been made redundant and might not make their rent this month? How can I help a single mum who's been raising three kids for months and months on end and hasn't been on holiday for a year? How, that's the kind of instinct that Paul is. That's the kind of clothing we are to wear. And so he, there's this example back in Acts 4. Let me just read these words. Where he talks about this moment where the church, the early church, lived with this kind of exuberant generosity to those around them. He says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So, so I've got a house, I've got a flat, I've got a car, I've got computers, I've got clothes, I've got uh, whatever it might be, I've got opportunities, and actually this is not just my stuff, you've got your stuff, I'm keeping this open-handed, so if I see anyone with need, or if anyone crosses my paths, actually there might be an opportunity to take this out of my hand and put it in their hand, either permanently or temporarily, I could use this to bless them. And he says this, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. He says this, there was not a needy person among them. I love that. Not, Trinity, you know about Trinity Church London? There's, there, there's never any needs, because like they're always just giving each other stuff and helping each other out. And when there is a need, suddenly within a week, everyone's rushed to help and they've got the stuff that they need to make it through the next month. That, imagine there was a counselor or someone from the government coming down, they spent a couple of months with us. And they're like, that, that, that church, they're like living what we've been trying to do at a political level for decades, they're doing it already. They're like five months old and this small community of people, they're like living this kind of utopian life in the middle of London. And they start asking, how do you do? Well, actually, everything isn't my own, and Jesus gave everything to me, and I want to make sure that I'm blessing and serving others. Because as we grow together and give together, we actually grow as a community together. And if we continually hold on to our stuff, actually, we'll just stay isolated and fragmented and never grow together. And we are already touching this. It's one of the things I love about Trinity, is just the, the generosity of spirit that is crisscrossing already in community groups and across us as a church. And Paul's saying, this is the way you put on your new clothes, by living with a spirit of generosity. What's in my hand that I can use to serve others? And then he says this, you are to put on encouragement over gossip. So he says these words, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
I think this is, I mean, this is just those conversations that you know where basically you're just cutting another person down needlessly. And so much of our city is built on this kind of conversation. I was sat preparing this in Starbucks just outside South Kent. It was packed, as it always is. And these two guys said, can we share your table? So I said, sure, by myself working on this message. And yeah, fine. I actually also love working in coffee shops because you get to like audio stalk people's conversations and you get to listen to what they're, don't worry, it's not creepy. I just, I'm just, I'm just, I don't record them or anything. I'm just, I'm just nosy. I like, I like, I like listening to what people talk about. And these two guys sat down. They'd obviously come from some office just across the road for a quick coffee. And the conversation went something like this. The one guy said, oh, you know me, like I get on with almost everybody. I'm just like a really easygoing guy. But you know that so-and-so, I cannot stand her. And what went on for the next 10 minutes was basically them just cutting this woman down to size. All the things she was doing wrong behind their back. And obviously, like, he's a nice guy, he gets on with everyone, but this one person, and so they spend the, And then what happened is these two other colleagues walked in, obviously junior, subordinates to them, and they suddenly went on this two, three, four minute tirade on them. I was like, oh, wow. And then they left, and then for the next 20 minutes, they seemed to go around and basically annihilate every, as far as I could tell, everyone in their workplace. As far as I could tell, they're the only decent employers and everyone else should be sacked. I was like, yeah, you're right. We need to go in there right now and sack them all. They sound terrible. But like, how often is that just what basic conversations? And that was their coffee time. I was like, like, that's, like you, you want some refreshment and you just kind of like critiqued everyone in your workplace and gone back and imagine the kind of devastating effects over months that that kind of would have in the workplace? What kind of environment would it be like to know that actually people go out for a coffee and snipe about you behind their back and think, huh, what, like, that would destroy community. And yet Paul is saying here, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Nothing that would cut someone down, but only talk that would lift people up. There are some people, aren't there, you spend some time with them and you leave them feeling amazing. You know those people, you spend like a coffee or even 10 minutes and you just feel something lift in your spirit. You sense a, a sense of purpose, a sense of renewed energy for what's next. You just feel encouraged. Paul is saying, be that kind of person where people spend some time with you and they just feel encouraged. There's a renewed sense of purpose and vision for my life. I, I didn't even really talk about that was meaningful, but there was just this sense of like blessing that came from them. F.F. Bruce is a commentator on these. He says this, there are some Christians where the, the, the conversation is a benediction in itself. I thought, wow. You know, some traditional churches at the very end of the service, there'll often be a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. It's this sense, it's not just tradition, it was there because it's to pray this benediction, a, a word of blessing literally over you so that we would leave with this sense of encouragement and strength in my inner person, a renewed purpose. Yeah, I walk with God. I'm going to work with God today. It says some Christians, they live like that. Don't you want to be that kind of person? 
You're like, oh, I had coffee with so-and-so. Oh, you had a good time. Yeah, it was like this like, hour-long benediction that I received, and now I feel so encouraged. Like, how cool would that be? Like, there's just this priestly benediction over Starbucks. Like, I feel amazing when I spend time with them. The people would even come amongst us. They say, what happened? I don't know, but I feel amazing. I feel like I've got this new strength in my inner being. I feel a purpose. I feel encouraged. I feel like this fresh joy in my life. Wow, I can't be interested to know about this church. That's what we are to be like. And then he says, you are to put on kindness over animosity. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me just deal with the bitterness one, because I think all of these kind of come together. It's this sense that there's just friction in the community. But bitterness is the one, I think, that we so often live with, because it's the thing where, especially in England, where we're good, stiff, upper lip British people, where we don't really know what to do with malice or slander, And so we bury it. And what it becomes is bitterness. And bitterness is this idea that on the surface level, you're functioning quite well. You go to work, you do your thing, you go to church, you socialize, you earn your money, you have your family life. Everything seems to be operating well. But if you mentioned a person or a name or a situation that happened, then suddenly... There's this fire that gets inflamed in your heart. There's an eruption. You can leave a fire overnight and wake up in the morning and look like it's dead. And then you just pick up a log or two underneath and you see there are these actual burning embers and you poke it enough, you give it enough oxygen, you put one or two pieces of fresh timber on that and within minutes sometimes it can become a fire again. That's bitterness. Something that is still there deep down and you mention that thing or that whatever happened, you're like, oh my, I've, I oh my, don't, we can't talk about this right now. I'm not in a position to talk about it. That's bitterness. And if we bring this into the community, it will infect us at some point. So we need to deal with that. Here's the good news that the Lord wants to deal with it. And here's the bad news. And if you're new to Trinity Church London, welcome. You are going to get hurt at some point in this church. At some point, someone is going to hurt you. And if you've been in any kind of community, in any kind of marriage, in any kind of friendship, in any kind of workplace, in any kind of church, you will know that already, right? It's just the fact that we're people. And until we figure out how to do church without people, you are going to get hurt at some point, all right? I know social media is trying to do community without doing community, but God has called us to do face-to-face life. And if we are going to do that, hurt is going to happen. The question is not when, sorry, the if, is when and what we do with it at that point. We need to deal with their quiet embers. And if you know there's a name, there's a thing, there's a situation in your past that you never really want to think about, that is probably the very thing you need to think about. You need to get with a friend, you need to get with a group and say, look, will you help me just lift some logs off this fire because there are some embers down there that I need to deal with. I need the Holy Spirit to pour some fresh, clean water. I need this to be washed away. I don't want any fire at all in my life. I don't want any bitterness. I want to live with kindness towards everyone. 
which is why I think he closes with these words, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because if any community is going to flourish, it is going to be because it is built on the foundation of forgiveness. That I am going to have to forgive you and you are going to have to forgive me at some point. And you're going to have to forgive the person to your right and the person to your left, most probably. And in that foundation of forgiveness, a community can grow strong and strong and strong. And you might say, well, Daniel, you don't actually know the kind of stuff that I've walked through. If you, if you knew, you wouldn't be so glib and like, oh, it's like a fire and it's embers and no. <laughs> <laughs> I was really hurt, you might say. Like, you don't understand. Like, it wasn't just, like, a nice analogy. It was... How does Christ feel about your relationship with him? How have you treated Christ over the years? When are the moments you've denied Christ? When are the moments you've hurt Christ? When are the moments you've spoken against him? When are the moments you've lived in a way that is at discord with, with Christ himself? When are the moments where actually it's been your sin that has freshly crucified him as martin luther said that it was your your hand if you put your hand in your pockets you the nails of christ's crucifixion are in your pockets how many times have you done that to christ and how many times has christ come to you and not harbored bitterness against you say i forgive you i want to lay down my life i love you so much i love you unconditionally and even if it means i'm going to die a bloody death on a cross i will love you and i will love you and i will love you just go to Christ, think about your relationship with him. And then come back and say, you don't understand. Because we have all done that to Christ. And this is where we are actually going to change as a community. It's not in us saying, oh, I've got to put on these new clothes and I've got to put, take off the old clothes. It is in us continually having our, the, the spirit of our mind renewed around the person of, of Jesus. Because I've lived with anger in my life, unrighteous anger, simply because it pricked my ego. And yet I look on Jesus and I see one who had wrongdoing continually done to him, even by myself. And he didn't act out of pride, but he laid down his life to love me and love me and love me. He reconciled himself with me at cost to himself, infinite cost to himself. And where there's... Uh, this greed in us that would want to take. We've got to look on Christ because when we see Christ, we see one who was in heaven, sat in the throne room of grace, in, 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 enthroned in splendor and glory, and re relieved himself of all of that glory in heaven, stepped down from the riches of heaven, stepped into poverty, and grew up as a peasant boy in Nazareth, and lived a penniless life, and died a horrific death so that you might be alive today and enjoy all the blessings that you have right now in 2019. You say, I'm struggling with this. Yeah, but look at Jesus who forgave you everything and laid all the riches to one side, became poor so that you might become rich. Have the spirit of your mind renewed around Jesus again. Look what he's done for you. John Owen who was a, a writer way back in the 1700s, he wrote this book called The Mortification of Sin. It's not a snappy title. Um, they didn't have marketing in those days. But it's a powerful book, like dense but powerful. And he makes this point from Acts 2. He says, what do you do when you sin? So you wake up tomorrow 
or you go home now and you think, oh my goodness, like four out of those five things, I'm still wearing the old dress code. What do I do? What do you do in that moment when you realize this? What you don't do is just try and beat yourself into being better. Like just, like must do. He says, what you have to do is you need to get a fresh interest in Jesus Christ. And he speaks about Acts 2 where Peter preaches this sermon and there are thousands of people in the audience and they're listening and we're told that they were cut to the heart. And he says, what does Peter do in that moment? So they, say, they say to him, what shall we do? They're going around to the apostles saying, what should we do? We know we've done wrong. We know our lives are not matching up to the life of Christ. What do we do in this moment? And Peter doesn't say, go home, you hard-hearted fools, and try better tomorrow. What he says is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, you need to have your identity utterly changed and renewed. Baptism is all about your old self being washed away and your new self being put on. He says, you've got to understand, you can have your core identity changed. Let it go and receive this new power. And you need to do that again and again and again. So if you've been baptized here by full immersion, your old self has died and your new self is alive right now in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, who faced lots of temptation with sin, he would fight the devil's accusations like this. Sometimes apparently he would throw like an ink pot at the devil, like he really did spiritual warfare. But then he would say this, he would say, I'm a baptized believer. Literally say, I'm a baptized believer to the temptation. I am a child of God. You can't touch me. I'm a baptized believer. I got baptized when I was 18. My old self was gone. I've got a brand new identity. I'm alive in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's how you fight this. You say, Lord, I put this on. I'm reminded. And if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. So I need my old self to go. I need to be washed away. I need it to die. And I need to be made new in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. And this is Paul's vision. If we can have the band back up. This is Paul's vision for this community. That we would be a, a dwelling place for God. That we'd be living in London in Christ. In such a way that we'd be so distinct that people would have to ask us questions. That when you go into your workplace tomorrow, they're like, there is some, there is like just some different thing about you. Your tone, the way you talk. You can have it there. I want to know about this. And we're going to respond in worship for this reason. It's not because I don't know what to do with the next five minutes until we close the service. We sing for purpose. You know that, right? Christians, we sing for purpose. And we're going to sing in Christ alone as we close out. And we're singing these words because it tells us the story of who we are in Christ. And it renews the spirit of our mind. So as we sing, even next Sunday when we gather, when you gather in community groups, we're singing because we're coming on the front foot and saying, Lord, I want to lift up the truth about who I am and the story that I now find myself in because you are glorious and I have a new identity. I want to live in this new way. So as we do, don't, don't, don't let's just go through emotions. Let's preach to ourselves, declare this truth. Song has a way of getting into our beings, doesn't it, in a way that just saying words doesn't. You go away humming tunes that gets into your being. So let's stand together. Just for a moment, just bring your heart to God. And if you're not a believer here today,
let me just encourage you that even as we sing these words right now, that you can have your old life disappear, washed away, and you can receive new life in Christ just by accepting the reality of who Jesus is, his death for you individually. It's as simple as saying, thank you, Jesus. I give you my old life and I receive your new life. That's it. You can do that right now. Father, I thank you that you have given us Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless one, crucified, resurrected, risen on high, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for this fresh identity. Bless us now as we press into this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord.